0: invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, which you can find on page 1065 if you're using a pew Bible and feel unfamiliar with finding John in the Bible, John, chapter 12, page 1065. This morning we're going back to our sermon series through the Gospel of John, and as we come to chapter 12, we come to a a very much a transitional chapter in John's gospel. Chapter 12 pivots us from the public ministry of Jesus in chapters 1 through 12 to the passion, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in chapters 13 through 21. So chapters 1 through 12, you have Jesus Out there in his public ministry, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's doing miracles, he's traveling up and down Israel, Uh, the crowds are following him, and and that public ministry really reaches its zenith uh, with, I I think, the resurrection, the the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and as Lazarus is raised and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, the public ministry of Jesus kind of uh, crescendos, and then chapter 13 on, you have the Last Supper and, and the Passion, And chapter 12 sort of moves us from one to the other. So as we look at chapter 12 today, we're actually going to look at the first two stories, verses 1 through 11, and then verses 12 through 19. And I'm going to read these stories in a moment. And at first blush, it it looks as if these stories really have nothing to do with each other, as if they're just kind of two narratives of things that took place during Holy Week, near Holy Week, one after the other. But I think on a closer reading, we find that there, there are common themes in both of these stories. They actually go together, that they're trying to communicate the same things in their central message, even though they do it with slightly different emphases and slightly different nuances. And yet it's sort of the same message through very different stories. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read these two stories back to back. Uh, and then as I'm reading them, uh, in addition to just kind of following along, I'd like you to see if you can detect the common themes and messages in both of these texts. And I think specifically there's two major themes that come out of this that are interrelated. So let me read these two stories. The first one's in John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. All right, that's the first story. Here's the next one. The next day, the great crowd that came for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So two stories, Mary anointing Jesus' feet with perfume, and then Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the crowds welcome him as the king with the palm branches. You know, the famous story we hear each year at, uh, around Easter time. But what do they have in common? I'd like to suggest there's two themes here. One, kind of the the explicit theme of both texts. And then there's a second kind of underarching theme that you you kind of have to look a little more closely, but it's there in both of these texts. So the first theme, the sort of blatant one that's there, is I think this. In both texts, we have stories about people honoring, exalting, lifting up Jesus. That both stories are examples of, Of people responding the right way to Jesus to a degree, as far as they know. It's about people who see Jesus, and rather than opposing them or harassing him, they're they're praising him and giving him glory and honor. And so in some ways, it's a bit of a model for us of, of how you should respond to Christ. Look at the first story, the story of Mary. Here's Mary, the sister of Lazarus. She's there uh, with Jesus at this dinner. It's six days, verse 1, six days before the Passover. So think of the Passover, one of the high holy days of Judaism when literally hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would surge into Jerusalem and fill up the city. The people are there. They're crowding in. Uh, and here Jesus is coming to the Passover. And it's six days before the Passover. He's having dinner in Bethany, which is a little village less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. And it's a dinner party. There's Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus is the guest of honor. Martha's in the kitchen working. Surprise, surprise. And they're reclining at the table. Now, just a reminder, you guys probably know this, but um, just kind of to remind us all, when they ate at formal dinners, they didn't sit down at a table, they reclined. So the table would be in front of everyone, and everyone would lay on the ground with their feet out behind them, and they'd lay on cushions and eat like this, kind of like how I used to Watched Saturday morning cartoons as a kid with a bowl of cereal in front of me. I'd be on the ground eating my cereal watching, you know, Super Friends or whatever cartoon I was into at that time. And so uh, th- th- here's this meal going on. And in that meal then, you can, you can see logistically how what Mary does is possible. She's not crawling under a table. She's coming up behind Jesus. And, and you have this exquisite, kind of very sensual, um, tender, almost intimate moment as Mary takes, a, says in verse 3, a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she pours it on Jesus' feet, wipes it with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So she has this expensive perfume, pure nard. Uh, the, the nard there is, is from this plant called the spike nard plant. It grows in India. So this perfume came from India, which you know nowadays i mean we get things from all over the world in in our global economy but imagine in Jesus' day what it would take to get perfume made in india to israel I mean, th- that was that was a long camel journey th- that was a lot of transporting so by the time it got there this was a very costly item in fact we get a sense of how expensive it is because when judas complains a few verses later he says it's worth a year's wages uh, the Greek phrase is 300 denarii. A denarii is about what a, a working stiff would get for a day's work. So 300 days of work, you know, get rid of the Sabbaths and the holy days. The year is about 300 days of work. So it's like what a, a working stiff would have to, to work all year to get. It's, it's that much money. It's a lot of money for perfume. If we're crying out loud, how did, they, how did she even get this? I mean, Was it a family heirloom? Who knows? This is expensive stuff. I was trying to come up with some modern day example, and I don't know if this works or not, but I'll, as I said in the first service, let me just run up the flagpole and see if anyone salutes, but, but imagine if you had a $60,000 bottle of wine. I don't know how you got it. Maybe you have some sort of eccentric uncle who's a wine aficionado, and in his will, he leaves you a $60,000 bottle of wine. You know, it's like, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? Maybe, it'd probably be the most expensive thing in a lot of our houses. Like, do I put it in my basement? Do I wrap it? Do I need to insure this thing? Like, what do I do with this bottle of wine? Maybe you would, you would keep it or, or hold on to it for some reason. Maybe you would sell it. You'd say, this is ridiculous. I shouldn't have this thing. I'm going to sell it. And I'll, I'll pay for like, you know, one semester of my kid's college education. Or, or uh, you know, I'll pay down my mortgage a little bit. Or, or maybe I'll, I'll sell this thing and, well, a missionary. Well, what if I pledged to a missionary $5,000 a year for 12 years? I said, for the next 12 years, you're going to get 5000 grand from me every year. I mean, that would be a great use of that money. Or, or help out the poor or the needy. I'll tell you, whatever you did with it, I bet most of us here wouldn't do this. We wouldn't pop the cork. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, 60000 <laughs> You know, even if you like wine, you'd probably be like, oh, I don't think I'm going to waste it on that in my stomach. I suppose there are some people uh, have great wealth and drinking that would be considered um, a luxury, but not an inconceivable luxury. But for most of us, we wouldn't even think of popping the cork. That's what Mary did. She popped the cork. Yeah, it's years away, just time to pop it. And then what did she do with the perfume? You know, like, oh, I'll make this last, you know. No, Jesus' feet. Like, why did she do that? It was just so, yeah, it was, it's extravagant. It's, it's over the top. It's like, you know, a little bit, someone i would say wasteful, right? Pouring it out. And then she wipes it with her, her hair. She's wiping and dabbing the perfume. And the whole house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Could you imagine that at the dinner party? Like, oh, I'm getting a headache, that smell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having an allergy. I'm sensitive to scents. Right? Why did she do that? I, I think it, it was just an act of honor and worship and love. It was an extravagant, extravagant expression of adoration. She was honoring Christ. She, she was saying, this is something worth this perfume is Jesus. And not just honoring Jesus. You know, she's pouring it on his feet. You know, what's that all about? Did he just have really smelly feet? I mean, like, why did you pour it on his feet? What, you know, we just think, what's the feet all about? Well, you know, think about what feet symbolize. They're kind of the lowest part of you, the most humble part of you. Most of us uh, are kind of embarrassed to even look at our own feet. You know, we're not really proud of how our feet are shaped. They're just kind of down there. So, so in biblical thought, to be at somebody's feet was to take a posture of humiliation and in honor of someone else. To kiss the feet, to grab the feet, to wash the feet, as Jesus will do in the next chapter for his disciples. Uh, It it was was a posture of honor, of of putting yourself beneath somebody. In fact, in in ancient times, when an ancient king would conquer another king, if he could get the other king alive, he'd bring the king in front of him. They'd force the other king on the ground, and the conquering king would do what? Put his foot on his neck. You know, the ultimate sign of I have dominated your kingdom. My foot is on your neck. You're under my foot. So for Mary to come to Jesus' feet with perfume is not only an honor saying, Jesus is worthy of this perfume. Jesus is worth this. But, but it, was, it, and, and it was a humbling herself and honoring of Christ. It's adoration. It's as if Mary was saying, Jesus is worth it and I will worship. I will pour out this lavish gift To show his worth and his beauty and his value. To get an idea of what Mary is doing, look at her foil in this story Judas Iscariot. He's the foil, he's the the contrast who shows what Mary was doing by what he was doing the opposite. So, you know, you look at verse 4, and there's Judas, right? He's complaining, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. That's a legitimate question, actually. I mean, that's a lot of money. You know. And, and giving to the poor is good. Jesus taught us to love our neighbor and to help those in need. That's a part of Christian love. If we have the love of Christ and we see someone in need, we're supposed to help people. So, you know, on the surface, what he's saying is completely legitimate. I mean, maybe they should have stopped and thought about what to do with that perfume. Why did she just start spilling it on Jesus? So, at the surface, both of them seem to be pious. Mary is... Honoring Jesus and Judas is a little more practical. You know, he, he's like, yeah, don't, don't just waste it like that. Let's do something good with it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we all love Jesus. We all love to honor him. But come on, this is hungry kids. We could feed with this money. It's a lot of money. But of course, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And God knows our motives. He even knows when we're doing things that seem good what our true motives are. A lot of good things are done with sinful motives, and selfish motives, and arrogant motives, and God assesses the heart, not just the action. In fact, the heart is even more important because the wrong motive makes the action unacceptable in God's sight. And so God looks at the heart here, and, and there's Judas's heart. Why did he say that? Well, verse 6, he didn't care about the poor. He was a thief. So yeah, he wanted to liquidate the, the liquid because then he'd have a bunch of money in his purse that he could dip into. It's actually worse than that. That's not the half of it. Because remember what it says in verse 4. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him. Whenever Judas appears in John's gospel, there's always that little tagline. There's always the asterisk by his name. Judas, who would betray him? Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus. It's as if John is writing this gospel. He's looking back on the story. And as he's writing it, every time Judas comes up, Judas' betrayal was so significant and, and so shaping that he almost can't mention Judas without saying the one who betrayed him. You know, There's always an asterisk by Judas' name every time he's brought up. So in other words, Judas not only wanted to sell the perfume for his own purposes, Judas is the guy who's going to sell Jesus, he's willing to sell the Savior, and he does for 30 pieces of silver. So there's the contrast. Somebody who honors Jesus, who says, Jesus, you are of immeasurable value that even pouring out this perfume is not enough. Versus Jesus is worth 30 pieces of silver to me and I'm going to sell him. So it's one of honor versus dishonor. It's an amazing contrast. You know, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. It's worth that, that oil. He's worth a $60,000 bottle of wine. He's, he's worth anything you pour at his feet. Jesus is worth it. He is worthy of all that we might sacrifice for him. Any amount of money, I don't care what price tag you put on it, it's worth it. You know, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. You know, it, it, whatever you feel God is leading you to give, it's worth it. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't give something that's of more value than Jesus himself. But it's not just money. I mean, let's just not stick to material things here. It's our time. You know, here we are on a Sunday morning. Um, you know, normal people don't sit in church on Sunday morning nowadays. They they sleep in, and then they, you know, start getting their wings for the Pats game that afternoon. I mean, you, you know, it's a Sunday is your day to chill out. It's your day to rest. So like, why, why do we come here Why am I here on Sunday? And it's because we're pouring out worship to the Lord. You know, we're we're here because he calls us together as his people, whether in this church or another church. We're called as, if you're a Christian, being a Christian is not a solo activity. It's being part of the family of God. And so Christians gather with other Christians on the Lord's day, and we worship the Lord together. We, We pour out our time, and we pour out our music, and we pour out song and our prayers to the Lord. We do it during the week, too. You know, every time it's late at night and it's Thursday night or Friday night or Saturday night and you're like, oh, I got a growth group tomorrow I got a plan for. I got that Sunday school class I have to prep for. Boy, I'd love to just put my feet up and chill out. You know, but you pour yourself out in ministry. You pour yourself out for Jesus. He's worth all that. He's worth every hour you've ever spent giving yourself and exhausting yourself for others. Jesus is worth everything you've sacrificed, your reputation, your good name. Um, maybe you don't uh, get invited to the same parties at school or the same cocktail parties now that you've sort of come out of the closet as a Christian. Maybe you don't uh, have the same greased uh, career track because of concerns about your religion and, and who you are. You know, you know, maybe you, you're facing some of that. Maybe, maybe your dating life has really been curtailed. Because the people that you might normally date don't love Jesus too, and so that is a limiting factor for you. And you're like, man, my, my, my romantic life has really been crimped by this Jesus. You know? You've given up things for his name, you've given up things for the honor of the gospel, to be obedient. It's worth it. Jesus is worth whatever you think you've given up for him. Even if you're called to give up your life for the gospel, to spend your whole life, to, to give up your very breath as some Christians have done in jail and in martyrdom. He's worth it. Because He is the greatest treasure. He he is the Son of God. And so Mary honors Him. Okay, now let's look at the next story. Not only does Mary honor Him, but in the next story, the central central action, the, the central plot, revolves around, again, people honoring Jesus. This time it's Maybe a more well-known story to you, Palm Sunday. There's the crowds. Word got out that Jesus is there. The crowds are gathering for the festival. They all start looking for him. People have come from Galilee. They know about Jesus. The news about the raising of Lazarus is going around. Look at verse 17. The crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they would heard he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So there's people going toward Jerusalem, spreading the word about what's happened. There's people coming out of Jerusalem because they, they got the word. It's like, just like that fragrance filled the house. So this news about Jesus' miracles filling Jerusalem, there's this buzz and excitement as everyone is, what, 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 what who's this? And, and it all comes together in, in this great moment of the triumphal entry as Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives. And there are the crowds greeting him with what I'm going to call palms and psalms. Waving palms and singing psalms, they're waving those palm branches. Palm Sunday. What? what? What's up with the palm branches anyway? What's that all about? Well, palm branches were, were a symbol of, uh, at that time, really like Jewish nationalistic hopes and aspirations. And you think of the palm tree, which they had plenty of. They still do date palms around Jerusalem and and in Israel, and, and you think of a palm tree, there's no branches going up, but it's just way at the top you have those fronds. So, so a palm frond, even just symbolically looking at it, it's something that's high, that's exalted, it, it's a way up there kind of thing. So to, to have a palm frond is, is to kind of symbolize exaltation and victory and triumph, something way up there, you, you kind of see the symbolism. But even more than that, in, in the couple hundred, 150 years leading up to the time of Jesus, there were a number of Jewish revolts against the Greek uh, uh, people who were uh, in charge of them, and then eventually the Romans. And often when those revolts would happen, the palm branch was sort of the symbol of nationalistic fervor and hope. And, and it even came to be in some of the Jewish writings associated with the coming of the Messiah. So, so you got these palm fronds, and they symbolize all these things, victory, triumph, Jewish identity, hope of liberation, the coming of the Messiah. And all that not only comes out in the palms, it comes out in the Psalms. So look at verse 13. They took the palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting. And here they quote Psalm 118 Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's right out of Psalm 118. Blessed is the King of Israel. And and so they're exalting him as the King, they're praising him. They believe he's the Messiah. Or they're hoping He's the Messiah. So they're praising the King and the Messiah has finally come. And here's the thing. They're right. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the King of Kings that they've been waiting for. He is the Son of David. He is the Messiah that every faithful Jew has been hoping for for centuries. He's the Messiah of Israel. They're right. And they should respond that way. That moment when the whole crowds are surging around Jesus, putting things before Him and praising Him, is how the world should respond to Jesus Christ. Is the appropriate response to the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Lord, and the Christ. Right? Now, notice the contrast. Mary had her foil with Judas. The crowds have their foil with the Pharisees. Look down to verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Oh no, you wasted a whole jar of perfume. That's terrible. Oh no, the whole world's chasing after him. That's terrible. No, that's appropriate. That is fitting. That's the least people could do is lay palm branches before him. The least. In fact, it's kind of ironic because the Pharisees are speaking hyperbolically here. They're like, the whole world's gone after Jesus. I mean, you know, it's, they're sort of overstating it, right? They're exaggerating. And yet they speak more than they know because the whole world is going to come to Christ. There's this sense in which, in John's gospel, there's this message that the gospel is going to go beyond the Jews to include the Gentiles, that Jesus has sheep in other pens. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, you know, it says, for God so loved the world. There's a sense in which Jesus has come to die, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. For all the nations, he's come to gather a people from among them. And, in fact, look at, look at verse 20. Check this out. Right after the Pharisees say that, look what the next line is. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the feast. And they come up and they say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. The whole world is starting to come to Jesus. Even more than the Pharisees knew. And you know what? The whole world should come to Jesus because he's worthy of the worship of the whole world. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, but not just of Israel. He's the the Lamb of God sacrificed for the Irish and the Italians and the The Portuguese and the the Nigerians and the Koreans and the Indonesians. He's the Lamb of God who came to gather a people from all nations and all languages. The whole world should go after Him. Jesus is not just a a kind of example of good moral behavior that all good-hearted people could learn from, even though He certainly is an example. He's more than just a prophet. He's more than a spiritual guru among many spiritual gurus who can lead you on equally valid paths to the truth. He's the Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, the one through whom we can know the Father and through Him alone. So the appropriate response to Jesus is that the whole world would go after Him. He is worthy of the world's worship. Which is, by the way if I could just kind of make it a little application here, which is why we as Christians need to be excited about taking the news of Jesus to the whole world, why we should be excited about missions, taking the gospel to people who haven't heard Jesus, taking him to other nations, telling them so that they can have that opportunity to join with us in worshiping the name of Jesus. And that's really what needs to drive our, our mission's passion is a desire for the world to know more about Christ. Um, you know, when you think of missions, sometimes we think about missions in our church and foreign missions, and we kind of get focused on the, the missions budget. You know, we raise money every year to support missionaries who go to the world, and that's a really good thing. And But I think sometimes we kind of limit our thinking to that. It's like, oh, yeah, we're a missions church because we raise this much money, we give it to missionaries. Hey, I gave some money to missionaries. I guess I support missions. And like, that's good, but it's bigger than that. I really have to look deeper in my heart and say, do I really believe that Jesus is worthy of the worship of the whole world? Because once I see that and I'm like grieved that Jesus isn't worshiped by the whole world, that'll propel me further. Not just to give money to missionaries, which is great, but I need to say I need to be on mission. I I need to be concerned and praying for the world. I, I need to be concerned about the the family that just immigrated into America that lives in my neighborhood. I need to be reaching out to them. There's something bigger than just a budget here. It is a whole mentality that wants to see the world honoring Christ that propels our whole lives to that end as we take the gospel outward. John Piper put it so well. Maybe you've heard this quote. It's a great quote. He said, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exists because worship doesn't. So that the whole world might go after him. He's worthy of the perfume. He's worthy of the whole world's praise and worship. He's worthy. And so that's one theme I see here. That's sort of the dominant flashing theme is these appropriate responses to Jesus in to, to a degree. But there's another theme, and let me just quickly touch on the second theme, that's sort of underneath, it's a little more subtle. And in some ways, it contradicts the first theme. The other theme you see in both of these passages is that even though people are honoring Jesus and praising Jesus, they don't quite realize the half of why they should be honoring and praising Jesus. There's there's also a level of ignorance and blindness even among those who want to lift him up and honor him. They don't quite understand how great he actually is. They don't quite stand in awe of him enough yet. Because really, all they've seen so far, from their perspective, is chapters 1 through 12. They've seen the miracle-working Jesus, the teaching Jesus, the Jesus who raised Lazarus. But they have yet to see the Jesus who would go to a cross, who would be buried, and who would rise again. They don't even know the greatest work of Christ yet, the, the ultimate expression of His love the greatest mystery of all, that the Son of God would die to save sinners. That hasn't even happened yet. And so you see that in both of these stories, that Jesus is, again, transitioning them. He's pointing them toward what's about to happen, and they don't, they don't know yet. So he's talking to Mary, right? And Mary's or hes talking to the, this group at the dinner party, and Mary anoints his feet with perfume, and Lazarus, or, uh, Judas objects. And Jesus says in verse 7, leave her alone. This isn't bad what she's doing. And then look at that, verse 7. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. The, the Greek there is a little hard to translate, but I, I like where this, this English translation is going because it's sort of emphasizing that, not that Mary was intending this, but this, this happened in order that she might use it for her his burial. In other words, it's not quite saying that this was Mary's plan. In other words, Mary wasn't sitting there thinking, you know, Jesus is about to go to the cross and die and be buried. And so as a way of preparing him, I will break out the oil. You know, Haha! I've got it. I mean, the Gospels make clear that the disciples just didn't get it until the very end. They didn't understand these things until afterwards. So I don't think Mary was intentionally preparing Jesus for his burial symbolically. I think she was honoring him. And Jesus kind of scoops up her act of worship. And he says, actually, let me tell you what. This is even more important than you know. He goes, I'm going to die. My burial is coming. I'm going to be sacrificed. I am the, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the sacrificial Passover lamb who would be slain for our sins and buried. Think about burial practices in those days. You know, if, if someone in your family dies today, um, you know, they die in your home, you, you, call the, you call the funeral home, and the funeral home comes and eventually takes the body of the loved one away. What happened in those days was there was no funeral home. There was no undertaker. You, you would, you, the family had the job, so the family would take the body, the family would wash the body, they would anoint the body with perfume, and then they would wrap it up in cloths and carry the body to bury the body. It was very hands-on, the family was very involved in the whole thing. And so it's a very different scenario. And so here's Mary, and she's putting perfume on Jesus. She's washing his feet, these kind of burial-esque actions. And so Jesus seizes upon that, and Mary has done more than she knows. Just as, you know, these Pharisees speak more than they know. Just like back in chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, when he says, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He speaks more than he knows. So Mary does this thing, and Jesus says, well, actually, my burial's coming, so leave her alone. This is good. This works. This is appropriate. It's fitting. Let her do it. This is how it was supposed to be. But she didn't realize, oh, if Mary only knew what Jesus was about to do for her, think how much more she would love him. If she only knew what he was about to do for her, she poured out some perfume on his feet. He was about to pour out his blood on the cross for her. She took a precious, expensive heirloom, perhaps, this bottle of perfume, and she opens it and pours it on Jesus. But little does she understand yet that the Father in heaven loves her so much that in order to save her, He took the most precious heirloom of heaven there is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and broke Him open on the cross so that by His blood, she might not just have her feet washed or perfumed, but that all of her sin would be washed away. That, that her disgrace and everything about her that's unholy and sinful might be forgiven by the blood of Christ. Her whole self, her whole soul cleansed and renewed by the power of Jesus' sacrifice all poured out for her. If she only knew that, how much more would she love Him? I just want to encourage anyone here today, if, if you're here today and you might uh, see yourself as a discouraged Christian or a tired Christian or a weary believer following Jesus. You're trying to stay faithful. You're in a hard place in your life right now and you're trying to stay faithful to Jesus even though there's some shortcuts you could take. You're not going to take them because you want to honor Christ. So you're sort of pouring yourself out. And you know, that, that that's a very noble thought, but after like a month of doing that or six months of doing that, It can become very weary. It can become very discouraging. And you you know, you get those thoughts sometimes, like is it worth it? Why am I doing this? Why don't I just do this? I know that that's maybe not what God wants, but can't we just do this anyway? And I just want to encourage you that whatever sacrifices you're making for the Lord, they're all worth it. Because you're sacrificing for the Lord who has sacrificed so much more for you than you know. There's no sacrifice we're making for Christ that it will not be repaid infinitely on the day when we see him when we finally see jesus on that day and we see the father in all of his glory god himself who will be our inheritance eternal joy in the presence of our maker when we finally see jesus on his throne who died for us when we stand for a moment on the shore of hell and look in to see the wrath of god that from which we've escaped through the blood of Christ, and the inheritance that we've, we've received through Jesus' merit. On that day, we will not be thinking, whew, I sure paid a lot of sacrifice to get here. Boy, I really had to work hard. We'll just be amazed. And any sacrifice we've made for the Lord, any hard suffering we've gone through to stay faithful to Him, will seem so small and, and inadequate in comparison to what He's done to save us. I just want to encourage you to to let your mind be filled up with the love of Christ toward you. To realize what he's done for you and that it really is all worth it. It's all worth it. If if we only knew Mary didn't know, we know and we still (laughs) get confused. So let your mind be filled up with the love of Christ and what he's done for you. Same thing in the triumphal entry and I'll just close with this. The crowds also honored Jesus but They didn't quite get it, did they? They were excited He was there. They are proclaiming Him as a Messiah. Good. But what did they mean by Messiah? What were they looking for as a Messiah? You know, their hopes for the Messiah and the salvation was primarily a political Messiah. Somebody who would rescue them from Roman oppression, who would take the Roman foot off them, allow them to be free. It was a political salvation. You know, when they cry out there, Hosanna, save us, it's like, save us from this, these Romans. Save us from always being a subjugated nation. It was hoped that God would get rid of a bad ruler and put in place a good ruler. Like, what we need here is better, a better leader. Oh, to be saved by having a bad ruler gone and a good ruler come in. And that's all, that, all the further it went. Maybe they had some hopes that this would be the final apocalyptic kingdom of God. You know, the messianic ideas varied in that day. But none of them were probably thinking that the main thing this Messiah has come to do is to save me from my sins. To die for me on the cross. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save us, Hosanna. But don't you see the greatest thing that God came to save us from is our sins. Our greatest need is to have our forgiveness before God. The world has many needs. And yet the greatest of all is to be rescued from the coming judgment from hell and from the wrath of God. And so God sent his own son Jesus to die in our place, to take my cross and my punishment. He had to die so that I could be saved. Check it out. Look at this. This is so cool. Look at verse 13. They quote Psalm 118, Hosanna, blesses He comes in the name of the Lord. Right? Look at Psalm 118. I want you to turn there. One last scripture. Psalm 118. It's on page 606. This is a messianic psalm. So much we could talk about in Psalm 118. It's an amazing psalm. But look at Psalm 18, page 606, 118. Verse 25. Here's the psalm they were quoting. Psalm 118, verse 25. O Lord, save us, which means Hosanna. Hosanna, Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're praising him as the Savior. But what kind of Savior was he to be? Look back at verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that they're all exalting is is the rejected stone. It is the one who must suffer and be rejected. You know, they're all welcoming him into Jerusalem. And yet, ironically, in less than a week, that same crowd is going to be hustling him out of Jerusalem. They welcome him with palm branches. But in less than a week, the palm branches will be put down and instead, a cross will be put on his back as he goes out of the city. He's accepted today, but in less than a week, he'll be rejected. And to think that he's being rejected so that they might be saved to rescue them. It's amazing. The Savior. What is it that you're looking for from Jesus? What, what is it you're looking for from God? Why are you in church today? Why am I in church today? Well, it's my job, but, but really, why? <laughs> you know, why you know, I, used, I went to church before I had this job, so like, why am I here as a Christian? Why are we... What are we looking for? And we look for all kinds of things from God. We look for happiness. We get into a problem or a pinch in our life, and so we run back to God perhaps. It's good. That's where to go when you're in a problem or pinch. Maybe we have financial difficulties. There's a whole element of Christianity that's all about health and wealth, that if you believe in God, he'll make you rich. There's that whole stream. Some people come to Christianity or come to the church looking for friends or maybe looking for business connections and networking. Why are we here? What is it that we want God to do for us? May Jesus give us the eyes to see that what he can do for us is the one thing we need the most and maybe the thing that we're not even thinking of. He came to save us from our sins and to bring us eternal life. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Heavenly Father, we love you because you first loved us. We worship you because of what you've done for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you died. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you raised Him from the dead. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you came after us and you opened our eyes so that we could see Jesus. And so this morning, Lord, we want to join with those crowds and with Mary in exalting you, Jesus, and lifting you up. We are here this morning to proclaim that you are the Messiah, the King of kings, the Savior of the world. We love you. We worship you. And Lord, it's our honor to give you our lives and our all. And Lord, we're also here this morning to confess that we still don't even see the half of it sometimes. Even we who have the gospel just don't savor it and treasure it the way we should. We're not awed by your great sacrifice for us. And so, Lord, I pray for myself and for this church. Give us a deeper sense of awe and wonder at your sacrifice. May it change the way we look at our Christian lives. And God, I just pray for anyone here. I don't know why folks are here, Lord. You bring us here for all kinds of reasons. Maybe it's like me when I first went to church is because my mom made me. Whatever the reason, wherever anyone's here, Lord, I pray that you take them from where they are and you would begin to show them that Jesus is the Savior. And show them, Lord, that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Oh God, I pray have mercy and show us the truth through your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.